Are your school days out of sight? When you took English, art, and math, what's your favorite Fahrenheit? How sour are the grapes of wrath? Do you need a challenger for discussing Salinger? Do you love the written word? What happened to the mockingbird? Our show is just beginning, so find a place to sit. These questions will be on the test. It's time for sophomore lit. Welcome back to Sophomore Lit, where we reread your 10th grade reading list. And this time we have a very special Halloween episode of Sophomore Lit. And who better to be here with us than the incomparable fearless leader, Jason Snell. Ooh, it is uh, spooky and scary to be with you. Who would have thought that far off in space, cooler, creepier minds were planning an attack on us? Well, we'll find out soon enough because <laughs> we are doing, uh, or uh, I almost said Orson Welles, we are doing H.G. Wells' uh, seminal work of science fiction from 1897, War of the Worlds. Um, and this was your suggestion. Uh, do you have a particular uh, affinity towards this book? Yeah, I read it in high school and I also got into the Orson Welles radio drama. I had that on a cassette tape and I listened to that a lot uh, as well in, you know, the 80s when I was uh, when I was in high school. So it definitely is something that has resonated and is something that I have not revisited since high school. So that's and, you know, famously on Halloween one year, uh, what, 1938 or something, he he. Yeah, uh, they they caused, you know, a minor panic among some people who thought that they had heard that aliens had landed when, in fact, it was a radio drama. But uh, if they listened long enough, they would realize very rapidly that it was a radio drama. Uh, and so that was that, that that was interesting. And, and it is a spooky, creepy Halloween kind of moment. And then the book itself, uh, as a science fiction reader, is one of the, you know, kind of early classics of science fiction so it's kind of fascinating to read it from that perspective too like you um my first exposure to the story was the radio drama which i learned about at a very young age my my father used to record old radio dramas from a local radio station mostly um suspense and lone rangers and even fibber mcgee and molly oh, yeah. If, uh, yeah and so uh, i i grew up knowing a lot about radio drama later in life i i i found zbs which i i talked about on the incomparable episode right. about childhood things uh so i I've, I've been deep in radio drama and uh i i quickly wanted to read the book that this was based upon and i have to admit as a child i was a little underwhelmed by this book same uh, <laughs> and then i went on to read uh wells's other two major works of science fiction uh the time machine and the invisible man both of which i found more compelling as a child mm -hmm. um but as time has gone on and of course as you learn more and more about uh hg wells he's such a crazy fascinating guy um you know i'm i'm i was happy to reread this book and boy it it it, it revealed a lot of interesting things to me i think on this read through Oh, yeah. I uh, I got to say there is something to be said for reading a book that you think you remember well from when you were a kid again 30 years later, because I got so much more out of this book than I did the first time I read it. And the parts I liked the best were completely different 
as well. <laughs> so I, I'm kind of fascinated. I always think that the that after the uh, that initial thing, especially it is true of the radio drama that the first part where it's a fake newscast is very exciting, and then the second part where it's just kind of Orson Welles narrating his way around the landscape is a lot less exciting in that way. But in the book, I felt like the the it was actually much more interesting sort of in the second half. Um, although the whole thing, yeah, the whole thing was interesting. There are issues with it. Um, I definitely have some issues with it, but um, I liked it so much better this time. Most people out there are aware of the War of the Worlds, although if you are aware of War of the Worlds, you're probably aware of it the way that people are aware of Frankenstein, that they 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 first were exposed to it in another form, yeah, and they may totally. or may not may or may not know the book. Um, this this book was originally serialized in uh, 1897 in Pearson's magazine in Great Britain, and originally serialized in the United States in Cosmopolitan, mm. because Cosmopolitan used to be a general readership magazine. It used to be a literary magazine. Uh, it wasn't until 1965, with the advent of Helen Gurley Brown, that Cosmopolitan became the the weird fashion sex magazine that we all know and love. And so you think, I mean, I would imagine most people, it's probably, I'd love to see a pie chart of like how people encountered War of the Worlds and whether it was the book, whether it was the radio drama, whether it was the George Powell movie from the 50s, maybe watching a rerun on, you know, on TV late one night. Uh, I did catch it there. Uh, whether it's the Tom Cruise version directed by Steven Spielberg, which was made, or there was also Paramount Television in the 80s did a, uh, or early 90s, did a, a TV series called War of the Worlds that was loosely based on the same concept. So it has been, boy, isn't it nice when things are in the public domain? Anybody <laughs> can make a movie or a TV show about it or a radio drama and whatever. It's fine. And I'm sure there are a few hippies out there who remember the 1978 concept album, Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds. Wow. Um, which I, I do recommend everyone look up if you if you aren't familiar with it. It's just an amazing example of a crazy prog rock concept album <laughs> from a time when <laughs> prog rock concept albums were on the rise. All right. Wow. I didn't even know about that one. That's cool. Yeah, but obviously there's something, right? Something here beyond just it being a classic science fiction work that was in the public domain largely um, that resonated that. And I, I reading this, I mean, I'm sure you have the same thought I did, which is it's funny because this is like in many ways the first telling of a story that now is just incredibly common. Like alien invasion is a genre <laughs> practically and has been for 130 years, I guess, uh, 120 years. And, um, you know, this is kind of where it started, but, um, the in, in in reading about this, um, I think it might be on the Wikipedia page about the book. I discovered that there actually was a British literary genre called the invasion novel which was basically novels imagining britain being invaded and that was a thing and they were like military fiction about various like powers from europe invading the uk and um i imagine there was some sort of a political bent to some of that stuff and apparently this book emerged from that what's fascinating though is that it has gone on to lead to this whole other with also probably some political uh thoughts involved in the way the stories are told this whole other uh genre essentially of uh, of work which is the aliens invading the 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 earth thing and it starts here and so it, it as 
a work from 1897, it feels awfully familiar in so many ways because it has, you know, it, it was mining territory that is just endlessly mined by movies and TV shows and books now. We talk about the way in which every generation reuses a story. This is such a, a bare bones story in some ways that it's very easy to use it as the armature upon which you will put any kind of gestalt, any kind of worldview that you have about your, your anxieties, whatever they are, can very well be reflected in this book um, totally. or this story. I mean, as you mentioned, there, there was this there was this uh, tradition of imagining Great Britain being invaded by continental forces, which, you know, wasn't far off. You know, World War One was around the corner um, and uh, nationalism was spreading throughout Europe in, in the late 19th century. And on top of that, England at that time was sitting on the biggest world empire anyone has ever known. Mm -hmm. And they were they were proud of that, but they were also dealing with that. You know, there was there was a lot of internal arguments about whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. And one of the things that amused me about reading this book through was I was thinking as I picked it up, not having read it since I was very young, that, oh, this book probably has something to do with Victorian attitudes towards empire. And of course, Wells makes that absolutely explicit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's not even, and again, not something I was really thinking of when I was a high school student, but it's absolutely true. I do wonder, um, I think both are probably true, but I do wonder about whether when you tell a story like this, and I'm thinking of something like Independence Day, where aliens come and they, you know, they blow up the White House and all those things. If you are at the top of your empire spans more than anything in the, in the, uh, in the, in, on the planet, and you're the, you're the top dog, then... I think two things happen. One, you could you could view these works as, um, well, we we have to imagine an external threat because there is no internal, you know, other than us being our own worst enemy. Like there, no other country that has more power than we do right now. So how would we be threatened? And the answer is from the outside, from off this planet, and that that is how you come up with a story about uh, the kind of the fear of being the top dog and being uh, overthrown in a way. But also it is a perfect vehicle for, for criticism of that empire. Right. And that is that reading this, I just kept thinking like this, this book is, is, <laughs> I mean, yeah, in, in a few places, I feel like very explicitly like, yeah, this is what it feels when uh, a hostile advanced technological force invades your land and just takes it over and doesn't care about you. Or, uh, yeah, there is a line very specifically about like the, is it the Tasmanians that that basically like the, the Tasmanians were all killed off in 40 years. And it's very much like, you know, the empire is on the other foot now. <laughs> right. Now, there's a line late in the book where... Uh, the nameless narrator breaks down and admits to praying to God for the first time. He he's right. not a he's not a religious figure. In fact, a lot of the time this book is spent in some ways making fun of a, another religious figure who is trying to see this all as some sort of act of God of punishment that the narrator dismisses. But he he has this line where he says, "Perhaps they also prayed." confidently to God. Surely, if we have learned nothing else, this war has taught us pity. 
pity for those witless souls that suffer our dominion. Mm. Well, let's, let's let's give a little uh, a brief summary, and 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 by brief summary, th- there's no other kind of summary for this book because this book has very little plot. It's true. It has a narrator who has no name and very little character mm-hmm. <laughs> who just happens to be everywhere that this Martian invasion is taking place. Uh, or maybe his brother at one point it happens to be there. But but um, mostly this narrator has either the good or bad fortune of being there where the first Martians land on the planet and uh, and and to discover the Martians uh, eventual fate uh, at the end of the book. This takes place in the late 19th century. As you mentioned, it has this wonderful, wonderfully evocative opening lines that were quoted pretty much uh, verbatim by uh, Orson Welles. By Orson Welles, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of, there's there are a few lines that Orson Welles took just right out of this book, even though he made many, many changes to the story. And they come at the very beginning and the very end of this book. This is a story that's told like it, it's it's recent history that everyone of the readers is uh, is aware of. You know, it's like... Yeah. Remember five years ago when the Martians landed, which I think is an interesting decision. Uh, in a few points, uh, points in the in the narrative, you can hear the narrator say, "Later, I found out that this happened," or "Here's what my brother told me happened over here," or "Of course, we all know how this turned out, but in the moment, we didn't know." And so it definitely is like the guy survives, uh, humanity survives, and in fact, many of the things that you might normally think were a big plot twist are kind of told as an aside, like, well, of course, we know what killed the Martians, but <laughs> it's like, what? Wait, huh? But uh, yeah, because it's a recent history of the Martian invasion of, of England, basically. Right. And 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 Wells is a pretty good a pretty good writer of that kind of thing. You know, mm-hmm. it reminds me of um, Douglas Adams's famous to spare you suspense. I we will tell you that the <laughs> missiles do not hit the hit the ship but in fact it results in the death of a whale and a a bull of what was it petunias petunias yeah and 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 so it 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 does exactly the opposite of what the narrator is saying it's going to do it it just it piques your interest you want to know you want to follow through to find out what's going to happen um on the other hand (laughs) this narrator is so not in the story He's a narrator who we don't ever actually learn what his job is, but he happens to be at an observatory when they observe plumes of gas coming off of Mars. Mm-hmm. He then many weeks later, uh, when the first cylinder arrives on Earth, it lands in Woking, which is where the narr- narrator lives, uh, which is a kind of a sub- suburban I mean, agrarian. Ne- now it's very much just a su- suburb of what, like Southwest London, although 120 years ago, it was more separated as all of these kind of like suburbs around megacities. You always are told if you live, you know, 20 minutes outside of the city center, you heard a story that 100 years ago, you know, that used to be mostly, you know, fields and things. And now it's all, all you know, houses and buildings. But so it's like that. Woking is a sleepy suburb, but on a, I think a, a train line or a trolley line or something into into London. It's it's outside London, but um, now we would consider it basically suburban London, London Metro. The first Martian spacecraft lands. And 
the sequence here of the Martian of, of the this cylinder landing of a crowd gathering around the crater, looking in and waiting to see what's going to happen, the eventual emergence of the Martians and the deployment of their weapons, the heat ray first and then the tripods which allow them to take the heat ray, ray uh, out into battle. Mm -hmm. um, that that that's probably the set piece that people know from this book if they know anything. Right. I think so. I think so. And and it of course leads to visuals and you get the, you know, machines on tripods and things like that in the George Powell movie and you know it is definitely uh a striking thing not not the thing that struck me the most about it i i thought this whole first part was kind of boring um partially because it's um what the joke i was going to make and now we it sort of passed us by is to <laughs> say that the um the first part of this book is really great if you know london geography and possibly london geography of the 19th century <laughs> but maybe if you know modern london geography you would find it amusing because it has that same thing like i live by the golden gate bridge there's you know there's a movie where they blow up the golden gate bridge and and it means a little bit more because you can see all the different parts of san francisco that they're destroying and whether they got the geography right and all that and it's kind of fun to see that or if you see a movie about something happening in an area you've been to and that you know as somebody who i've been to london a bunch but this is all like suburban you know outskirts of london this is south uh, south southwest of of heathrow and eventually they get up by wimbledon and like there are so many place names and so many roads and i am sure it was like catnip to the people reading it in pearson's magazine in london in 1897 but it's so boring just like <laughs> they went up this street and they went to this town and i walked down this street to this just not like that part once he's like fearing for his life and the martians have set everything on fire i think the book gets way more interesting which is funny because that's not how i felt about it in high school as far as i can remember the narrator sees these martians uh emerging from their crater and they rain fire down on on the, the town of Woking. Yeah, he's he's lucky not to be just turned into ash like he sees other people being just completely burned alive by this heat ray right he briefly um in the confusion and trying to get his wife out of town there's a sequence where he meets an artillery man who was sent with uh, a, a a regiment to try and suppress the martians who describes how they were they were utterly routed um that artillery man will appear later in the book he's like one of the only characters who gets something of a character um in the book um and then we're treated to a brief interlude with the narrator's brother right who happens to be in london and who escapes uh via the river uh, and helps so a couple of, of of women who are being waylaid by brigands on the road. Right. And they end up, uh, yeah, fleeing to to a boat that uh, goes to the coast and they're like attacked by tripods in the river and a, an iron ironclad from the British Navy rams one of the tripods and allows them to escape. And it's a, it's a little bit of a, an action set piece in that bit. And then, and then that's the end for the brother after that. Like it's a, it's yeah. a, we spend a little bit cause he needs to do a meanwhile back in London. And so he does it with the brother. 
Well, I, I, I think that even Wells at some point realized that he was stretching the credulity of the reader by having his narrator just happen to be everywhere the action was happening. So it just happens he had a brother who was able to fill in a little bit of the action there. Um, meanwhile, the narrator uh, has fallen in with a curate who has been on the run and who is convinced that this is some act of God, the Martians coming to earth is some act of God. Um, now a curate, uh, it's a, it's a confusing term. As far as the church of England goes, he would be a parish official who assisted the parish priest and who was responsible for things like baptismal records and that's, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, what's important about him is he represents this viewpoint that God is punishing them somehow. And there's, there's a, there's a line that I actually thought was, was quite uh, remarkable there. When the curate is, is saying, why is God doing this? The narrator says, be a man, said I. You are scared out of your wits. What good is religion if it collapses under calamity? Think of what earthquakes and floods, wars and volcanoes have done before to men. Do you think God has exempted Weybridge? He is not an insurance agent. <laughs> you know, you talk about lines that pop out as unexpectedly relevant to you. Because this is what you hear all the time today when people try to make some sort of case that X disaster or X, you know, calamity, shooting, hurricane, whatever, is due to the some uh, sinful action on the behalf of people. And, you know, Wells, even even in Wells' age, he's, he's, he's addressing the same, like, you know, there are natural disasters everywhere. Why do we think, you know, just because we're first world people, we get special treatment? The whole curate thing is fascinating, too, because then he he's rendered a brute by the end. Like he stops talking and is just nonsensical. So. Um, I mean, this is a disaster movie, essentially, right? I mean, and th these are the tools, these are the narratives that we always use to ask ourselves these big questions about why do bad things happen to us? And what, you know, how does our culture respond? And what tools do we have to respond to them? I think it's kind of fascinating that, I mean, it really is. It is everything we think of as, as how do you put the entire, not just uh, uh, even a country, but the entire entirety of humanity and everything that it believes through the ringer. And this book does try to do that. The curate becomes such a babbling idiot that he becomes a danger to both of them. Yeah. And the narrator knocks him out or or perhaps kills him it's not it's not clear he he comes up behind him with a butcher cleaver and they say and he says that in a moment of pity he turns the, the butt onto his head but it it doesn't really seem to be any better for the curate because the curate uh gets dragged He's away. away by by uh tripod tentacles that take him down to drain his blood which the martians used to feed i mean it's ooh, that i think so that is my favorite part of the book i have to say oh, yeah. i think it's incredibly tense they, they're trapped what happens is they're in like an outbuilding behind a mansion and they found some food and they're basically sitting there and what happens is one of the martian capsules lands on the manor house and explodes it and 
pushes the dirt in such a way that essentially they can't get out, but they do have this view into this pit, the new pit that they're the, the new Martians are going to start building up with their stuff. And so they're trapped, but they also get to witness the Martians firsthand and they're deathly afraid that there's, they're going to be found out or he's deathly afraid. And the, uh, the curate keeps eating the food and drinking the wine or in the, in the water and like they're so they're going to run out and so he gets increasingly angry at him and uh, and yeah it does lead to him making noises and so he hits him with the with the cleaver and uh the they're they're searching the place and they touch his shoe but but they don't take him they don't figure out that he's a person they just touch the shoe right, like through a doorway but they do haul the curate out and they, and he sees the people that they've taken as prisoners and they kind of like throw him over the back of the tripod into a basket of people and they pull those guys out and drain their blood to use uh as food and it's uh, i thought that was all really um super tense and weird and and creepy and i like that part a lot you mentioned touching the shoe. This is one of the things that's interesting about this, um, the, the way that Wells imagines these Martians. There are a lot of things that the Martians apparently can't do or aren't aware of. They don't have wheels, for example. There's a point in that chapter where the Martians are fiddling with the uh, bolt on the door and the narrator says... It had found the door. The Martians understood doors, exclamation point. <laughs> well, we're doomed. Once they figure out doors, it's over. There was like a very famous, man, I'm trying to think of it now. There was like a, a Hugo winning story from way back when, uh, like in the 50s, about discovering alternative universes and these people go through and they're trying to figure out what's different about this alternative universe and they they eventually find out that in this alternative universe people never figured out the idea of paint and they were going to sell that to this universe as their big idea they were like <laughs> nobody tell them about paint we're gonna we're gonna patent it and go in there and make a million dollars but there's a lot of things that are kind of crazy about Martian technology. So anyway, eventually the narrator is able to get out uh, of, of, of the ruined house, minus the curate. Uh, he, uh, he runs into the artilleryman again, who has become a crazy survivalist mm -hmm. and who has these plans about living underground that sound an awful lot like the plans at the end of uh, Dr. Strangelove. Uh -huh. There's tunnels and I w I'm going to make a tunnel and, and all this land is mine now, but you can be with me and you can get your own land and all that. And it's also funny because like it's there, we never see a scene where he leaves. I get the distinct impression that it's like, then he went to bed and I left because that guy is crazy. It's <laughs> like he has to slink away from this guy. He's got big plans, big plans involving tunneling under the earth um, and 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 finding creating a whole like a society in the sewers, because when there aren't any people left in London, the sewers won't be bad and we can live there and we can breed and we can have a whole like humans can be like rats in the undercity. He's got a whole bizarre plan. And the guy, uh, our narrator is like, uh, OK, goodbye. And he's out of there. So our narrator eventually makes it to London. There's a lot of interesting little touches. One of the things we didn't mention is that along with the Martians and their tripods, there has been this bloom of what they call red weed everywhere that is oh, yeah. growing in the water, which is which is a nice creepy touch, uh, the a literally creep, creepy touch of, of, of this 
vegetation that seems to be turning on the earth as well. Um, but when he arrives in London, he sees uh, the tripods there. He decides he's tired of, of living like this and he's just going to go ahead and let the Martians take him. And when he arrives, they're all dead. And a spoiler to a 130-year-old uh, book, they yeah. all died from basically the common cold. Yeah, that's right. Bacterium that would be found in water or whatever. So yeah, yeah, basically they've got a virus or a bacteria or something that they're they're not. The way he describes them is kind of unusual because he says basically like they're so evolved that they've left. They don't have. They're just brains. They don't. They have to use machines for everything because like to move and manipulate things because they're basically just a a, a ball of goo with a brain and some tentacles and and so they're like highly evolved. But he says, but they must not have had germs in which is weird that is very weird there is a point in the middle of the book when the right in the middle of the most tense part of the book where he's with the curate there's an aside that's sort of like one of the moby dick asides where huh. we get to talk about whales for a while where he's going to talk about martians for a while and this is where he just gives you this big info dump about their physiology and what scientists have learned about martians since then and he mentions that on their planet they don't have microorganisms which you know, makes no kind of sense. Yeah, it's probably wrong. I mean, he's he's a primitive uh, 19th century man and probably they 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 do. And he doesn't really understand that it's because it's it's not scientifically invalid. The idea that, you know, you're not this is the story. That, I mean, it's it's a story of European uh, conquest of North of North and South America. Right. It's the same right. thing. It's like they're not immune to our diseases. And so they can invade, but they're they're going to die. And uh, and that is the resolution. It is it is anticlimactic when it happens, especially since he mentions it earlier. So you're like, you know, like like we were saying about this framing device of the or the the perspective of the narrator is from the future, um, having lived through it. And, and so at one point he does go like, oh, and of course, that's what killed them. And that's how we all survived. And I'm like, oh, OK, good. And then <laughs> and then by the time he gets to London, basically like, yeah, the red weed is crumpling up and the Martians are dying and are dead and uh, and it's over. And so you don't get a a, a sense of triumph like that you didn't we nobody beat them um but that humanity survived enough to kind of like have been humbled in a way by this uh this invasion although of course they it also describes immediately that they begin analyzing all of their technology in order to find ways to use it the the narrator is reunited with his wife yes um which whom i haven't mentioned up till now i i guess i did mention that he he was trying to evacuate her earlier on at this point of the book i honestly had stopped thinking about him as as being corporeal because he just he, he's just so much a, a narrator a, a narrator <laughs> yes yeah no but he has i mean there's the mystery of like it looks like where he sent his wife uh got destroyed and so she's probably dead but then he goes back to their house which is still there and um he's very sad because his wife is dead and then she's in the backyard with with a friend and uh hooray everything's everything's fine and it's it's all fine there's an interesting schizophrenia to this book because there's a certain amount of Victorian optimism and cheerfulness that runs through this book. In the epilogue, we're told how quickly London is rebuilt and how everything is is back to normal. And the narrator feels like 
in some ways, like he alone is left with a sense of disease, like, hey, this could all happen again soon. Right. And and I can't imagine that uh, the world would actually go through that kind of trauma without there being with about that, you know, people having to endure years and years of therapy. Um, but on the other hand, the book does have these interesting little digs about how pleased human beings are with being at the top of the chain, food chain and how pleased the English are for being at the top of the world social structure mm -hmm. and and saying, but but there's no reason for that. And uh, just as invasion literature informs a lot of this, the other thing that informs a lot of this is Darwinism, yeah, um, yeah. which is explicitly mis mentioned throughout the book. So it's again, it's not making a, a reach. He talks about how from a natural standpoint, there is no good and evil, that it's just the Martians are this kind of an organism and human, humans are this kind of an organism and they are competing over resources. I kept thinking about um, the, I mean, you talk about the, the it's, it's Darwinism and that he talks about evolution and how they've evolved. And I, I imagine that in this, from this audience, that was kind of a fascinating thing to talk about is imagining evolution and how it would be applied elsewhere as well. But the, um, you know, I keep coming back to thinking about World War One and World War Two. But especially how close World War One is when when we talk about this kind of devastation, and this devastation didn't happen on the soil of England, but it, you know it did happen on the soil of France, and uh, and the and it killed you know many 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 English people, and it it is, I mean I. I I I've got to think that this is the spirit of the age, right? Like there was a sense that this sort of thing could could happen like not that aliens would land but that the a fear at least of a kind of a disastrous uh conflagration like this because um, it, either that or it is just a an incredibly creepy coincidence because you know so much of this is about basically wandering around in your home having it been de destroyed by a military action that's basically what this is about and that can be read as the conquest of uh, you know of empire and 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 this is what happens to what empires do but it's also about this kind of looming looming war um but it's it's uh thinking about it in those, in those terms made me appreciate it a whole lot more the the fact that this was in england on the precipice of a pretty um shocking 45 years since this is such a model for science fiction since wells was such a model for the form in, in years to come one of the things that this book models is the way in which the the themes drive the narrative there's there's not character development there's not interpersonal conflict aside from this curate at that that one point it's mostly uh, the exploration of these large themes of conquest, of evolution, you you kind of sit there waiting for some for something to happen that that will root this in the moment, and maybe that's why you were mostly interested in the scene between the narrator and the cur the curate. Um, there's there's not a lot of that in this book, and and I and for better or for worse. One of the criticisms of science fiction, and particularly science fiction of the the golden age, was the way in which it became almost entirely about either 
exploring some concept of technology or the author postulates some social dilemma that arises from some new discovery and then that's that's what the, the story is just sure. is just that social dilemma sometimes i think yeah people take the wrong lessons from from the wells stuff although wells got it all right i mean he's got extrapolation like not not just things that are have already been discussed commonly like um evolution but like I, one of the lines i highlighted is about how um, they're terrified because the Martians built a flying machine and are learning to fly. And th the line is, I stopped on hands and knees for we had come to the bushes. Fly! <laughs> yes, he said, fly. And it's like shocking. They're going to fly? And I thought, oh yeah, that's really bad because nobody can fly in Earth on Earth in 1897. Like there are no airplanes yet. There's balloons maybe, but there's no, you know, we haven't really got that part down yet. And here... Uh, you know, he just throws that in there. It's like one of these things. They've got the, these tripods. They've got these heat rays. They could fly. They're like, they're technologically superior forces. And, you know, when I was a high school student, one of the books, a uh, modern science fiction novel that I read in the 80s was Footfall by Larry Niven and Jerry Purnell. And that is a, you know, that is a novel of alien invasion. And the whole idea there is you think that your modern armies and technologies are so great, but here's a superior force with superior technology and they will lay you low and i just there is something about talking to the people who are in an empire that feels dominant and the top of the world and telling a story where they're laid low because there's always a bigger fish i guess you mentioned earlier about how when the narrator describes the martians he talks about the way in which they've evolved into these brains on tentacles because their technology has become an extension of them. And there's a part in the book where Wells extrapolates on that and he talks about how it, it will be the same with us now that, you know, we are becoming increasingly dependent upon technology. At this time, it would be trains or telegraphs or whatever. Right. And what's interesting to me about that is what Wells is talking about here is really transhumanism. And he's talking about it like well before anyone has any conception of this. And that was the big buzzword in science fiction in in the 90s uh, and, and with cyberpunk and, and and you see this kind of a ghost of that idea coming forward here totally totally i mean the martians are that's their whole idea is that they they have they have prosthetics for every um every occasion right like they everything they do they basically slide their tentacles into a machine and so when they land, the first thing they do after they unscrew the cap of their spacecraft and pop it off and they start building stuff because or assembling stuff, because that's that's what they are, is they are they are a technological opponent. They are they're entirely about technology and and uh, and not about humanity in any form. They are completely divorced from that. Um, the other thing that I, I did mention this earlier when we were talking about um, kind of like some of the influential things here, but I want to mention it is um, they they use chemical weapons. Like that's the other part that made me think about World War One is that they they release the black smoke, which eventually dissipates, but it like kills everything in the water and it kills everything on land and then it dissipates into kind of an ash or a sand. And that again, just you're just thinking in less than two decades, that is going to be happening, you know, intense uh, chemical warfare is going to be happening in Europe. And, and he's got that 
going on here too. So, I mean, he's, he's, I'm sure some of that was in discussion and maybe had been deployed in certain ways. I don't know all the history of like chemical warfare in Europe in the 19th century versus the mustard gas in the 20th century. But like, there's a lot of stuff like that too, that, that is figuring in here. It's, I mean, that's, that's the funny thing is I, I, in reading this, once I got past all the London travelogue stuff, like all the other stuff in it, I actually thought was fascinating, but it really required me to be old enough to have learned enough about history and sometimes seeing it kind of repeat to get the like, oh, I see what he's doing here. And some of it is very intentional and some of it may be lucky because I think that science fiction writers in part just get lucky. Sometimes their worldviews and the things they're talking about turn out to be right. And we remember those and the ones that are totally wrong. If, if they're lucky, we don't remember those. <laughs> right. No, you, you're absolutely right about this, this to point out the chemical warfare um, in the, in the early 20th century, the phrase total war was uh, coined to describe warfare against civilians and against uh, economic structures, as well as against military units. The idea that you would wage war actively against an entire population right. rather than, and, and that was completely antithetical to the way that war was being um, waged in the, the, say, the Napoleonic times, where basically you got your armies out there, you went out into a battlefield, you battled in the battlefield, and you kept it out there. Right. One thing that Wells didn't get right, which I found just very funny this time, is the whole method of getting from Mars to the Earth is <sighs> is quite quite fascinating to me. Before there were rockets, the expectation was the only way you could get someone off a planet would be to fire them from a gun yes. as, as hard as you could to escape gravity. And somehow you were going to get one shot to get that trajectory right because there was no way you were going to steer that thing now for the next, you know, several thousands of millions of miles as it yeah. crosses space. They basically fire 10 bullets at the Earth and that's it more or less and then they they all crash down and the, yeah and, and the other thing that occurred to me this time that just never occurred to me before because i love that sequence of them around the pit waiting for what's going to happen mostly because i have that strong memory of the orson wells radio drama version right. of that which is so great but but but, but then you realize what hg wells is saying is this thing fell to earth with no no way of slowing its descent. Right. Plowed into the earth and it made a giant crater. Struck the earth as a meteorite. And then these gooey tentacle creatures crawled out. And all I could think is like, what kind of bubble wrap were they in? Yeah, well, they are they are gooey and maybe boneless. So maybe that makes them be able to withstand the G-forces. But yeah, I find it funny that apparently um, this book was a huge source of inspiration um, to Robert Goddard, who was one of the uh, inventors of liquid rocketry and multi-stage rocketry. Um, and that's funny. I wonder if it was like, hmm, how would you actually, because firing is not going to do it, firing out of a cannon, it's not going to work. How would you get somebody off the earth? And uh, it inspired him to do better <laughs> than the Martians do in this book. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is funny how, I mean, every 
you know, the, it's the stuff that he gets that you're like, oh, hey, he's not far off there. And then there's the stuff where you're like, no, that's not. No, that's not. And that, that's part of the pleasure of reading old science fiction is seeing the the right guesses and the wrong guesses. Well, one thing that's neither right nor wrong, but was highly influential, was the conception of Mars as a dying planet, and this idea of this planet that's whose resources are used up, um, because we we've we've all read stories about dying planets uh, since that time, but but this this kind of was the genesis of that. You know, in another 20 years, Edgar Rice Burroughs would take this and run with it in his Barsoom stories. Right. Um, but, but you know, we th there's something about that idea of a uh, planet towards the end of its lifetime and of entropy that could only come out after the a age of enlightenment when people start to realize that there is this thing uh, entropy and that planets are dying down and, and that star systems are dying down so that everything is winding down that makes it possible for people to imagine the ends of worlds uh you know th that they couldn't have probably before that yeah the um and although like the way it's portrayed here is not really right in the sense that it says Mars is an old world. The idea that, I mean, because the solar system all kind of happened at once, but right. <laughs> the it is not wrong in the sense that based on our modern conception, you know, it's thought that Mars could have had liquid water and have been more Earth-like millions of years ago, hundreds of millions of years ago, maybe billions of years ago, but a long time ago, and that it has since lost its atmosphere for the most part and lost all of that water. And like, it's all, you know, some of it's subsurface and some of it's in the ice caps. But, you know, scientifically, although some of the details are wrong about this story, there's a lot of it that actually turns out to not be that wrong, that, that Mars is a used up planet that might have had much more stuff on it way, way, way back in the past. That part is actually not wrong, even though the way it's described as being old is not accurate. So, you know, some stuff ends up uh, ringing true, even though, yes, there aren't canals and all of those things that, that people talked about in that era. Um, they're, you know, it, it, it's not that wrong. In fact, he gets Venus more wrong in passing. He's like, oh, and they're going to go to Venus next and land on Venus. And it's like, <laughs> mm, there's no, mm, no, there's nothing there. <laughs> You know, it 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 does stretch the credulity to to believe that any race of beings that was smart enough to uh, master interplanetary travel would not think of um, microorganisms. It's also it seems as though the Martians arrive on, on the planet without fully appreciating what the um environmental conditions are going to be right or or maybe it's but but maybe not maybe i'm i'm maybe i'm wrong here because the martians are also presented as inscrutable and not really very concerned with individuality or with their with anything they don't see the their individual lives as precious in any way so maybe they just kind of came down and just soldiered on like little worker bees yeah, and I think that the book says in its in its famous opening, like we don't really understand these these minds and what they're up to, and they don't, you know, they're just doing what they're doing, and there's a level of it that's like who can say why they're doing it? We're too maybe too primitive to know, but but at the same time, like there are turned out to be things that are outside of their realm of knowledge too. And so I think that's his point is like, they know so much that we don't know, but they didn't know that there are germs. 
and that, you know, or that they would be susceptible to them. And it's just, if it's outside of your domain, I mean, if it truly is a world that didn't have, you know, germs, then how would you imagine that there are germs that could kill you? And I guess that's the, that's kind of the ironic uh, twist here. Although I'm not sure whether Wells really cares about why the Martians die other than just to have a time frame from which a narrator can tell, tell the story and, past tense you know um but that it it is interesting that they're felled by the by the little microorganisms we can't see but have recently scientifically discovered right so it's it's very scientific um but uh that's what gets them not us not our you know you know he specifically talks about putrefaction bacteria and there's a point um there's a point where he says the Martians don't bury their dead. And so I was thinking to myself, if there are no putrefactive bacteria on Mars and they don't bury their dead, what happens to them? Do they just kind of like stack them up outside? And... Maybe they burn them. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. How many of them are there and how long do they live? And I mean, there's so much that they're not, the Martians kind of aren't the point in terms of like beyond that one uh, detail where he gets that he happens to have gotten a good look at them and he does say like the parts that didn't get eaten by dogs have been taken to museums and studied and things like that because many of them were just kind of uh, eaten by dogs after the uh, after after they died um, yeah it's uh it's a it's a wacky book but it it, it has more going for it than I um than I than I had thought because it is it is modern in some ways in the best kind of way for a book like this which is it's modern in that it was so influential that it feels very familiar in a lot of ways at points because it is telling this story that has become a really common story this alien invasion uh preying on a culture's fears at a certain point in time and using that to tell a a story like this like it's a classic in that way and in, in, in a real way it's a it's a whole nother story that's probably outside uh, of the patience of our listeners, and maybe um, some at some other time we can discuss this. It is really interesting to trace the way that the bare bones of the story got recycled into the radio play, into the George Powell movie, into the uh, Steven Spielberg movie, into all these different forms and the ways in which it keeps getting used to to different effect. But I, the one thing I, I will say is I think it's telling that the very first thing that every adapter seems to do is they give the narrator a name, an occupation, <laughs> and usually a love interest. Yeah. Makes sense. That's that's a much more modern take on it than this. I mean, I I have to imagine, uh, you know, some of the scenes I was imagining them too, and it's very much like you want your protagonist to be somebody who's active and dynamic and a person. And this is, I feel like this must've been a literary technique of the time that some people used, which is he's not Mr. You know, X with an underline or Mr. Underlined name, but he is an unnamed figure who is just kind of passing through. And uh, it's a little weird. So yeah, that would be the first change I'd make. So it's not surprising. Everybody else also is like, yeah, what if we have that guy be a character, especially if he's going to be played by an actor, that's probably important. Which is your favorite adaptation of this? Oh, I think it's the uh, I think it's the radio drama. I think the, I, I love that radio drama because of the idea that you're taking because um, in this in this it takes so much time for news to spread out. I think that's a, a, actually a fascinating thing about it is today if you did this like the moment the like if you've seen attack the block like the, people just are immediately taking cell phone videos of this th hey we found an alien and killed it uh there is an alien invasion going on here's here's what we know like it would be everywhere and in this 
book, it takes days for the newspapers to even give like mention of the fact that aliens and then people don't realize they're a threat, even though they've already turned on the heat ray for more days. And one of the the amazing things is that 40 years later, with the advent of widespread radio, uh, Orson Welles can tell that story. And you're literally listening live to the cylinder landing and the Martians emerging from the pit and killing people. It's uh it's it's a really amazing it's on the internet you can find i think it may be embedded in the wikipedia page for the war of the world's radio drama i think you can literally just press play and listen and that first bit until they get to the commercial break um the first bit is so good so that's that for me like it's so good like it is i mean and i, I always like um fiction fiction portrayals cloaked in journalism tropes i think like uh if you remember from the 80s they did special bulletin which involved a a nuclear bomb going off in charleston south carolina like stuff like that is really fascinating because it's like what if we use the tools of news gathering to tell a story that is fictional um but make it feel like more real and wells nails it it's amazing it's it's harder today to imagine a story that would be able to spread that way. But I keep worrying about that. You know, I keep worrying because we we do live in a time of misinformation. And maybe it's because uh, because information sources have become so diffuse, it might be possible. Uh, you know, it certainly has been possible to convince a lot of people of a lot of things recently um, and, and, and maybe even even an alien invasion. Uh, but I don't know. Uh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> it's fake news. Didn't happen. <laughs> okay. Any last words or is that it? It's it's a Gutenberg. So it's out there for anybody who wants to read it. And I think it's a, I think it's a fun read actually. Uh, especially are you, are you familiar with London suburbs? Boy, you will <laughs> love War of the Worlds. But for the rest of us, when you get past that, yeah, there's some, there's some cool stuff. You'd be surprised. It's uh yeah, I, I enjoyed rereading this, and that is not always the case when I dip back into my high school reading trove. So thank you for prompting me. Thanks again to co-host Jason Snell. You can hear Jason on many podcasts on The Incomparable Network. Find more funny, smart podcasts online at theincomparable.com. Write to the show at sophomore.literature at gmail.com Join us on Facebook or the membership Slack. And most importantly, happy Halloween, everybody. Get out and vote, because everything will be on the final.